Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Old, who do you think? Who do you think you are? Excuse me for a moment. I mentioned my name, so my phone decided to respond. That's how, that's how popular I am. Identity is right there. Um, I will uh, invite the three candidates for the general election to come and uh, spend a morning with us, if we can fit that in logistically, between now and uh, the 7th of May. If there's something you think I should particularly ask them, um, then no promises, but do let me know, and I'll give it weighty consideration, and we'll try and treat them all the same. Um, God's in his heavens, and uh, that Psalm 96 is an amazing declaration of the truth of who God is and that his salvation needs to be proclaimed not just day after day, but to all peoples all around the world. This is the final sermon in this series. Sad times. Next week, something very special. And then the week after that, we're going to, for the month of May for three Sundays in the month of May, pick up the theme of money, possessions, generosity, and giving. And uh, as you may already know, and we'll talk more about this perhaps next week and then in subsequent weeks, we face an unexpected financial challenge as a church. So whereas lots of times when we look at uh, God's Word together, we all have different contexts as a sense in which we'll be coming together with uh, a particular context. And as a result of that, we're going to have a gift day on the 21st of May. So a lot more detail to come. This is just a, a heads up several weeks down the road. 21st of May, there'll be a gift day, and you'll find out more about the where's and why for's of that over these coming weeks. And also on the 18th of May going forward, We're going to have a 24-7 prayer room here in church as well. So May is going to be an exciting month, not just because of the two bank holidays. You can only understand who you are once you've understood who God is. That's basically been the whole message. It's the only uh, big story, maybe, that's worth remembering. Everything else that we've talked about flows out of knowing who God is. If God is Father, then I'm a child. If God is risen, then I am alive. If God is whatever else we had, if God is creator, then I am creative, and so on and so forth. If God is forgiver, then I am forgiven. Everything about who I am only makes sense if I understand who God is. And every time you try and understand your identity without reference to God, you will end up in a cul-de-sac of disappointment and despair. And that's partly why the whole world, or at least the whole Western world, seems to live in a state of, of, of despair when it comes to our identity. We are desperate to make sense of ourselves and so much social media, so many magazines, so many television programs, so much airspace is devoted to helping us in different ways try and make sense of who we want to be 
or who we would like to believe that we are. All those things that we cannot get from anywhere else other than from God. My identity is given to me by him, from him, and in that sense, therefore, my life is for him. We are made in his image. We are made in his image. There is someone who will remain nameless, who referred to Evan a lot, and in some ways still does, as little Simon. Evan is our 11-year-old son. This was several years ago now. She would also unfortunately say, you're so lovely I would eat you. Uh, That's a reference to him, not me, at least I think. And and, and to this day, 11-year-old Evan is well scared of her, you know who you are. Because he thinks maybe, just maybe, she will one day eat me. (laughs) The poor kid gets his identity in some measure from his father. There is an unfortunate truth for him that he is a little Simon. Exponentially, it is true. Not unfortunately, but positively, that we are little, and the the language doesn't work, but go with me, understand what I'm saying. We are little gods. Do you you understand what I'm saying? We're not gods at all in that Old Testament idol sense. But we are little gods. We are little images of the true Father. We are little Father, little Son, little Holy Spirit. That's our true identity, the gift that in Jesus we are given, and always are stepping off point. And over these weeks, we've covered a lot of grounds, and you can catch up with all the podcasts. Um, the guys have done a brilliant job of getting them on on a Sunday afternoon. Have you appreciated that, some of you? Give them a round of applause. That takes a lot of effort. Thank you very much. And they've also spent a lot of time trying to get the sound right as well, and that's improving all the while, and I'm really grateful to them uh, too. So, the final one in this series, God is missional, therefore we are on mission, mission. We cannot embrace our true identity unless we recognize the task to which and for which we exist. Mission is not something that we add on to another, to an otherwise fulfilled Christian life. Mission is not something we do in a gap year or a year off or several years out. Mission is not something we do for a special week once a year as a church. Mission is not something we do for a week in the summer when several churches decide to work together and have a barbecue and buy helium balloons. Mission is something that we are. It's who we are because we are little gods, little Simons. Understand it in that context. We are little. If God's on mission, then in his image, we are little mission people. God has always been a missionary God. Right from the beginning, when it all went belly up in the Garden of Eden, right the way through and way beyond till we get rescued through the decision made in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see God at work rescuing, reaching, reacting. All those brilliant words that Shireen said some moments ago. What's it about? What's Tiddlywinks about? It's about relationship. It's about serving. It's about reaching. It's about being alongside people in their, their moment of need. It's about helping people encounter Jesus in the ordinary every day. We pray for them because in the name of Jesus we're on mission in that place. Because God's always been on mission. 
It all goes belly up in the garden. And then we get some hints of it just a few chapters in with the story of Noah. When when God rescues a whole family and he puts them in the ark. And it says the Lord slammed the door shut. Something uh, uh, very profound about the security of our salvation. Just in that phrase, that little image. The door is shut behind them and they're safe and they're secure. Whatever the storms might be outside. And then we get this great unfolding story that goes on through 66 books of the Bible and 2,000 years of church history, which is God at work, his mission in the world. God called Abraham and said to Abraham, do you know I'm going to bless you? And Abraham said, that's great, I've always wanted to be blessed. What will that blessing be like? Will I be rich? Will I speak in tongues? Will our church services be buoyant and happy and joyful? What will that blessing be like? God doesn't actually say. But he says, I will bless you that you might be a blessing to whom? To all the nations. I'm going to start with you, not just for your own sake, but I'm going to start with you for the sake of everybody else. And so the story of blessing that would go to the ends of the earth began. Uh, We see it in Joseph when when God's purpose takes over the whole uh, Egyptian uh, nation and Pharaoh and the whole known world. It goes on through Moses who took the people in slavery. He led them into a promised land flowing with milk and and honey. And so this is the land in which I'll bless you. And, And almost every prophecy about what God would do in and through them, is that God would bless them, that they would be a light, in order that it might go to the other nations. That there is never a sense in which God was going to bless Israel because they were special, and then it would stop. God was going to bless Israel. And they were special because he'd chosen them. But he chosen them that they might be a blessing. And in the end, you get King David. They didn't want... Um, God said, I don't think having a king's a good idea. The people said, we know better than you. Nothing changes there, does it? And uh, eventually God said, go on then. And, uh, and even in the, the great reign of King David and then in Solomon, uh, when arguably, in terms of Old Testament times, the nation of Israel reached their pinnacle and the nations were gathered up in something of the light of what God was doing with his people there. And in the fullness of time, when they thought, how on earth are we ever going to be a blessing to the ends of the earth? In the fullness of time, Jesus I saw something in God's Word last week that I hadn't seen before. Has that ever happened to you? Kind of every other day, isn't it, really? But I I hadn't appreciated the contrast that's built in the heart of the Old Testament between Jonah, who wouldn't go. Remember the story of Jonah? Go to Nineveh. And he said, nope. Go to Nineveh. Nope. And he ended up in a bit of a fishy pickle. The contrast between Jonah who wouldn't go and Jesus who would. You say, where's Jesus in the heart of the Old Testament? Well, in the book of Isaiah, there are four, there are more than that actually, but four main poems, songs that speak about Jesus who would be the perfect servant. So you've got this contrast, even in the Old Testament being built, of Jonah who wouldn't go and Jesus who one day would go and the blessing would go to the ends of the earth. Jesus arrives on the scene at Christmas, and there is this determination to keep moving until he gets to where? Where does he say, I've got to keep going until I get to to Jerusalem? Why? Because no prophet, what does it say? Dies outside Jerusalem. There was this kind of inbuilt determination that Jesus had been sent for this missional purpose. We're not Christians to be gathered into church. We are missionaries 
to be sent into the world. The direction of travel through the whole of the Bible is about being sent out, not about being gathered in. We are not Christians to be gathered into a church. We're missionaries to be sent into the world. As I grew up in a Christian environment, and it wasn't just peculiar to me, as we grew up in our Christian environment, the main uh, direction of movement that we hoped for and longed for was that there would be a gathering in. If we were unfortunate enough to go out into the world, we justified it because we would go out into the world to earn some money so we could support the work of the church. If only we can uh, earn the money that we can pay for our food, and but then we can get on with the real work which kind of happens within the church. It was certainly the whole uh, emphasis with which I grew up. Part of that's the calling that God had on my life, I understand that, but a sense nevertheless that we kind of tolerated what went on out there so that we could gather it all back in here. It was drag in rather than push out. So we are sent as Jesus himself was sent. Okay? We're little Jesuses, made in his image. As the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. The direction of travel is a movement out rather than a gathering in. If that's true, If all of us, whether we like it or not, have already been sent, then we ask ourselves this question. What would Jesus do in your street? If Jesus lived in your street, which of course is the best street in Ipswich, where else would he live if he came and lived here? If Jesus lived in your street, what would he do? What kind of neighbor would he be? If Jesus was in your family, if Jesus was in your workplace, what kind of work colleague would Jesus be? What would he be? What would it be like? If Jesus was in your club, your organization, whatever it might be, the squash club, the choir, the whatever it is, what what would he be like? That's not a hypothetical question. That is a very real question that each one of us needs to wrestle with because we are sent, little Jesuses. And if we've got no idea what he would do, then we'll have no idea what we should do. And if we've got no idea what we should do in his image, we will be way off beam in terms of living out our true identity. So just for a moment, we'll feel the pain just for a moment, because it's much easier for me to move on, for you to listen to me, than have to think about a difficult question. And it is a difficult question, maybe. Think about it for a moment. What would Jesus do if he lived in your street? What would he do? If you're an introvert... That's fine, you carry on. If you're an extrovert, talk to the person in your head or talk to the person next to you. Go. What would Jesus do if he lived in your street? Or take the workplace. What would he do if he, if he was your work colleague? Well, what, what would that be like? What would Jesus do? <clears throat> okay, you there? Do you know what kind of neighbor Jesus would be? Anyone like to share? Noisy? Party? Jesus would have parties. Sorry, can't hear. Deb. Helen said caring. Always be there, is that what someone said? Uh, meeting needs, making stuff out of wood. You'd be a carpenter, yeah, you'd be a good person to fix your fence, wouldn't it? Just sort out my fence. And while you're at it, I'll have one of those nice garden tables, please. Okay, you'd be hospitable, you'd be invited in, yep. He'd notice you, bring people back together. Come on, let's dig deep, two more. There's hope for you then, Sai. He'd invite the tax collectors and the sinners. Fit in whichever bracket you want. 
just for the record, he is, does work for the NN Revenue. I'm not... <laughs> he'd heal people. He'd pray for people. He'd heal people. Yeah, he'd share his knowledge. He'd share his insight. He'd teach in different ways. Sorry? Absolutely. He'd be with you. He'd help you. He'd, be, he'd notice what's going on in your life. He'd walk alongside you. He'd heal you. He'd always be understanding. Okay, he'd challenge you. He'd expect you to grow and to move. Where did that come from? Oh, Bella. He wouldn't compromise on the truth in the way that he lives, Becky? What a roll now, aren't we? Uh-huh, okay, there'd be a sense of, of which he'd be a magnet, or there'd be some drawing uh, together around that, around that home, around that place. Ah, he wouldn't be rushed. What kind of garden would he have? Would it be tidy or messy? Tidy? <laughs> ah, trick question. I've got no idea about the garden. <clears throat> Guess it depends whether he was a gardener or not. <clears throat> My father is a gardener. I think that's a book. Okay, <laughs> before we totally lose it, there's a sense in which it's easy for us to adopt a position in life that I'm waiting for the call. When God tells me what to do, then I'm going to do it. I'm doing this job for now, but I sense God's got more for me, and I'm waiting for him to tell me what that is. It's like there's a telephone in our lives, and we're waiting for it to ring. The truth is, the telephone rang 2,000 years ago. The truth is that we are already called, that we are already set apart to be mini Jesuses, to be in His image. That's who we are. That's the plan that there would be lots of Jesus people all over the place. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be, what does it say? To be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's plan and purpose for you right there. To be conformed to the image of his Son. That he might be the firstborn and there might be lots of brothers and sisters. And whether you like it or not, there are similarities between you and your brother or sister. That's the hardest lesson ever to accept, isn't it? I'm not like you, but you are. There is a family likeness. Peas in a pod sometimes. That's what it should be like. That wherever people encounter us, we might look very different. We might dress very different. Our personalities might be expressed in all kinds of different ways. But there'll be a sense in which we are peas in the pod. That we are mini Jesuses right where we are. So how do we adopt a scent posture? How do we adopt this kind of leaning into the fact that I have already been sent? It's not that one day I will be, but that it's already happened. And I think that's probably where it does start. It's about thinking differently. Moving away from the one day God might ask me to do something somehow, somewhere. That might be true. But already I am in this place of being sent. If you have a light, you make a decision as to how to use the light in any given room. You might want lots of bright light in a particular context, so you put the light in a particular place in the room. You might want a bit more subtle lighting, and so you put the light in the corner somewhere so the light is a bit gentle, but nevertheless it brings a glow to the room. What's your light like? You are already that light in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your club, whatever it is, in your social gathering. How are you positioning the light that you already have because you have already been sent to that place? You are the light of the world. The second thing, I think, 
to adopt a posture of being sent is that we have to see like a missionary. We have to see like a missionary. When you think about these different places, what what do you see? Jesus, again and again and again, saw a harvest. He saw people that needed reaching, a harvest that needed reaping. The fields are white until harvest, or the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. As he journeyed into Jerusalem not long before his eventual death, he looked down over the whole city, and what did he do? He wept. Because he saw the need, he saw the brokenness, he saw the lostness. To to the average person, it didn't look that lost, it looked alive and buzzing. It was Passover time in Jerusalem, it would have been party central, it would have been festival season, like going to London, it's all buzzing and lights and it's all happening. But he saw beyond that. So what do you see as a missionary in your workplace? What do you see as a missionary in your street? And maybe because we we do think like this a little bit, if you were not living in your street, but you were going to go on a gap year to your street for 12 months, and you were going to go on mission to your particular street, what would you do for those 12 months? How would you plan? What would you think? What would you see as you look around? Harassed, says Jesus, and helpless. And so he had compassion on them. Stop, look, listen. Is that the green cross code right there? I thought you pressed a button and waited for the green man. Anyway, stop, look, what do you see, uh, and what do you hear? When you get into conversation with people in your workplace or in your street or wherever, what, what do you hear them saying? What are people really saying? Very quickly, people want to talk about the things that matter to them most. Some of you have got the gift that even in the checkout queue, the cashier boy or girl will begin to share what matters to them in their lives. People are that desperate to talk about what really matters. Stop, look, listen. If Alan Cutting was helping us go on a mission trip to somewhere, there would be a kind of orientation before we went, wouldn't there, Alan? Nod, thank you. A kind of, what, are we, what can we see here? What do we know about this culture? What are the needs? What are the vulnerabilities? What are, what's its history? What's its story? What makes it tick? Why do people behave like this? What do they need? If you do that for where you have already been sent on mission, what kind of data do you gather? What do you hear as you study the culture? So we need to think like missionaries and see like missionaries. We need to pray like missionaries. We need to pray like missionaries. I love this prayer. I quoted it last week. Uh, A few weeks or so in to the mission of the church and that they're getting busted by the authorities and they go back to the prayer gathering and they pray, now, Lord, consider their threats. Now, these weren't empty threats. They just nailed Jesus to a cross, which is quite a serious threat by any one's estimation. Consider the threats. Consider that the journey that we are on might even end us dying the most excruciating death any human being has invented to execute someone else. Consider all that and still enable your servants to speak the word of God with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal. Is it on the screen? Yeah. Just a bit nervous about the healing one. And perform signs and 
wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is some kind of praying. This, uh, no wonder the place was shaken. But, but notice about it, this kind of praying, the Bible in the story is affirming. It's the right kind of prayer. If you ever think to yourself, am I praying the right kind of prayers, then this is the sort of prayer to pray because you know you're on track. And the interesting thing about this kind of prayer, it wasn't about that God would be active in the world. It would be that God would enable us to be active in the world in his name. It wasn't a prayer for them. It wasn't a prayer for the missionaries around the world. It was a prayer for the missionaries, wherever we have been sent. And whatever we've already been sent and called to do. A prayer about empowering themselves, that they would be offensive to the kingdom of God and not defensive. I would have prayed that God would soften the Sanhedrin's hearts, that they would look on this young, fragile church with favor. But that's not the prayer the Bible affirms. The Bible affirms a very aggressive, offensive, missionary type of prayer. We are in this place sent in order to be God's kingdom agents. So in the name of Jesus, help us be what you've sent us and called us apart to be. Some of you have been praying in your workplace. Utterly brilliant. Because it helps you step in to missionary mode. It helps you to stop, to look, to listen, not just to what's going on around you, but to listen to what God's saying to that workplace. Some of you are in neighborhood prayer gatherings. Brilliant. Helps you to think about the fact that God's called you as Christians into that place for this particular purpose. Fourthly, Adopting a sent posture, gather like a missionary. I love the way that when they got together, the first thing on the agenda was how the mission of God, when they go out, would advance. We need that kind of culture, that kind of context, that as we gather, what's on our hearts is how we can help one another to be better missionaries to the world in which we go back to. That we might be better God's people in those places. Those are the conversations, those are the prayers that we need to be fired up about. We tend, as I've said before, to measure the number that are seated, the number of people that we get seated here on a Sunday. It's a very visual measure. There are less people generally seated here in church than there were a couple of years ago, just so you know. Uh, And that could be a worrying trend. We need to understand what God's saying about all of that. But there is a more important measure. It's not the number of people that we get seated, but the number of people that live sent this coming week. You with me? That's way more important. People will need to be seated in order to be sent. If people never get seated, they won't get sent. But what really matters is the number that are getting sent. And what I do know is that there are more people being sent than there were two years ago, and that I'm thrilled about. Hello? I thought that was good news. Yeah, I thought that was good news. It's very easy for us to measure the number that we gather, and way more challenging to measure the number that we gain in all the different spheres of our life and influence. Jesus had a surprising disinterest in the 99 that gathered. That's a bigger number than your average church. He goes, well, I'm going to leave those sitting in some kind of sheep pen, bleating away, and I'm going to go and look for the one. And maybe that's because we've lost something of the urgency. And there is, the Bible kind of speaks a little bit about this, that whilst the length of Jesus' return gets extended out, they genuinely kind of thought that Jesus was coming back pretty quickly, and they taught us to live as if that was so, that he could come back at any time. Why? Because he could. 
to live with that sense of urgency. That's what kept them going. They, they just reiterated to one another, this is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of God's salvation. And in, in, in contrast to that, I can find myself thinking, well, maybe I'll get that call one day about what I should really do in my life. Maybe God will, will open up something, whatever, somewhere, somehow, but I'll just keep going with this for now until I hear God's call. Uh, and yet they, they lived with this kind of uh, sense of, of desperate urgency. We've got to do it now, because today is the day that I've been sent as a missionary to wherever I am. Adopting a sent posture, believe like a missionary. If you go on a mission trip, you genuinely believe that you can make a difference. Usually, your belief that you can make a difference is probably overinflated on a week's mission trip. I'm going to solve Africa this coming week. I'm stretching it a little bit. I'm going to go to the Middle East. We'll sort that out before uh, we come back 10 days later. But in this sense, that I've been sent tomorrow on my mission trip, because every day is a mission trip, we don't actually believe that we'll make much difference. And we don't actually believe that we will reap some harvest tomorrow. How many of us are expecting someone to come to faith tomorrow? Because they're ready. How many of us are actually excited about continuing a journey with someone tomorrow? And so we go into tomorrow not really believing that tomorrow is going to make much difference. Are you with me? And somehow we have to change that. Because that's not what it says in the Bible. I know that's my iPad, but that is a Bible. That's not what it says in God's Word. It says that every day we go out into mission and people get healed in the name of Jesus. And every day we go out on mission, there'll be signs and wonders because that's the kind of thing that Jesus does and we're little Jesuses. And we'll speak the word of God boldly wherever we go because we can't help it. I don't mean brash and horrible. You know, we're fed up with brash, horrible people. But people that love deeply but speak God's word boldly, that's what we need. Because we believe the mission to which God has called us to. And we need to help each other. That's why this gathering as missionaries is so important. Because I will only believe it if you inspire me by what God did through you last week. You see, when you come back with a story and say, do you know what, last week I had this conversation, or I took the bull by the horns and I prayed this prayer and Jesus did something, I'm going to go, wow, I'm going to have a go at that this week. You with me? And we need to tell those stories in our small groups, in our missional community, in this forum, wherever we're gathering, after coffee, you know, after church when we have coffee, tell some stories that are going to propel us into faithful actions and faith-filled actions in the week that is ahead of us. We need to gather like missionaries that we might believe like a missionary. And finally, we need to act like a missionary. Whoever claims to live in him. I found this verse tucked away in 1 John. Sneaky. Just tuck it away at the back of the Bible. Maybe hope no one will notice. Kind of blew my head off. Whoever claims to live in him, any believers in the house? Just a few. The rest of you are smart enough to see what's coming. (laughs) Must live as Jesus did. Quick, someone look it up in another translation in case there's a get-out clause. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So, wind back 20 minutes. What would Jesus do in your neighborhood? And what would Jesus do in the particular context where you are already sent? 
And we talked in general terms when we fed back, and it was brilliant. But you can make it much more specific. Because the story, the principle of God's Word needs to get applied in a very particular context for us. That The message of the Good Samaritan is not just love other people. It's not even just love other people who are different and perhaps you don't even like. But it's love the person who's different and you don't like, who you have to work with. Or you have to live with. Or, or you're living next door to. Or always beats you at the squash club and makes you feel rubbish. Whatever it is. And so take those things that we know Jesus would do and make them really specific and really particular for you because you are a little Jesus. Do you believe that? You're a little Jesus. Some of you are a bit bigger Jesus and some of you are a little Jesus. Shape and size. But that's... Alan. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's not just hard. It's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible. Jesus knew it was impossible. So what did he do with those first disciples? He said, wait. What did they have to wait for? For the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said, exactly Alan's point. Jesus goes, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand one iota of a chance to live this life of yourself. You can't do it. Wait, and the Holy Spirit will come on you and then you will be my witnesses. You will, wit- you will be little Jesuses. You will witness to me. Your testimony of word and life will be my testimony. You won't be... Uh, and we, we see a group of people who, who went from, as we might naturally feel, I can't possibly do this. That's how the disciples felt. The best thing the disciples could do, even after the resurrection, was to stay in a prayer meeting. Now, I know that sometimes prayer meetings can be dangerous because it might be your turn to pray. But that's the best they could do, was to, was to huddle in the prayer meeting. But once the Spirit came, they could not help themselves. Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit on us so that we cannot help ourselves but be little Jesuses where you've placed us. Help us to see like missionaries. Simon, come on, before you self-combust. Use that one. Um, with the other prophets, we try and listen before the service. But I have to start early because I can't do it as quick as the others. So that's a weakness in me. <laughs> and so like, I started this morning and I, I got this phrase, expect the unexpected. And I thought, you're having a joke, God, you know, what's that about? So I put it to one side and totally ignored it. Sorry, God. Until you got to the bit in your sermon. And I realized that actually what God is saying is our expectations are too low. And... We need to live in the Holy Spirit and actually realize that we need to expect the unexpected, i.e. that when we pray, something will happen. Now, I know, I know it is hallelujah, and I know from my own experience that when I um, take enough courage to step out and act, that God does do stuff, but it's pretty much never the stuff I expect. So that phrase, expect the unexpected, turns out not to be a joke that I was just having with myself when I was getting ready this morning, but it turns out maybe to be a prompting from God, but you'll have to discern it. Thanks, Sam. There's a sense in which it's to be little Jesuses is our destiny. It's what God's called us to. There's a sense in which the whole of heaven's on our side as we step into it. And it is about stepping, it is about expectation, it is about allowing God to do something in me. And, and we don't go from zero to 60. 
You know, when, when I step out in a little bit of faith and, and exhibit a little bit of Jesus, what, what does that do to my faith? It causes my faith to rise a little bit. And, and then I've, I've just got a little bit more faith for, for the next one. And then that helps my faith rise a little bit more and for the, and for the next one. And so I get to a place where there's someone I'm relating to and I can't believe on earth that they'll ever, I'll ever even have a faith conversation with them, let alone see them come to faith. But after one or two, three or four, five or six, suddenly my faith is rising. Are you with me? And I need you. I need you to keep me going. Most of the discipleship stuff, because we're well versed in it, we can do it by ourselves. I don't need you to keep reminding me to read my Bible. I know that. I can do that by myself now. But I absolutely need you to keep reminding me that I'm on mission. You with me? I need you to be asking me about it. I need you to be praying with me for it. And slowly our faith rises. You'll be my witnesses right where you are and then to the ends of the, of the earth. Adopting a scent posture. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Thank you for that sense in these moments of it getting really real. We kind of want it and we don't. We kind of believe it and we can't. We kind of know what we should do and yet are all wrapped up in what we feel we fail at. Thank you for those ragtag bunch of disciples that were as faithless and as clueless and as upside down and as inside out as that we so often are. Thanks that you took them and they encountered the risen Jesus and your Holy Spirit fell on them and we're here today because of the movement that began with those early followers. Thank you, Lord. And we don't have to wait anymore. We're already sent. We're already called and set apart. And the Holy Spirit is already being poured out. Pour out your spirit afresh, Lord. Jesus, Jesus. I just sense the Spirit saying, you know, what, what, what we want now as we pray for the Holy Spirit, or I'll just personalize it, what I want is to feel really on fire for God right here in, in church. That's what I want. With the belief that if I feel really on fire here for God now, then when I go out, I'll do some stuff for him. It doesn't work like that in the Bible. What happens most of the time in the Bible is, is a commitment of will, and as we step into that, so the power comes. The River Jordan, the banks were held up only once they put foot in the river. It's as we are his witnesses, so we will receive power. And so whatever we're feeling now, all fired up or a little bit deflated, the power comes as we step into the calling on our lives to be little Jesus right where you've placed us. What a beautiful picture of little Jesus is all over this town. We'd love to see Ipswich, Ipswich come to faith. But what if we planted some little Jesuses in the health service and some little Jesuses in BT and little Jesuses in some of the businesses that meet in town? What if we planted some little Jesuses in your neighborhood and in mine? Almost you could begin to believe that a strategy is in place to take the town of Ipswich for Jesus. And it's all there, right now. Already pregnant with possibility. And so maybe like Isaiah, all we do right now is say yes. And then tomorrow morning we say yes again. And we say, Lord, help me to see what Jesus would do. And help me to start doing it. To write on the back of your hand, your screensaver, your phone, an alarm, a reminder, your notebook, whatever you do to trigger something in you, that there would be a trigger in us this week, a reminder that says, you're Jesus right now in this place. Step into who you 
are for the glory of God. Help us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. May your spirit blow across our lives this coming week. May our faith rise. Help us not to waste gatherings with conversations that dull our faith rather than inspire it. Help us not to waste opportunity to urge one another on. What does it say? To good works. That our light might shine. That people might see our good works. And not praise us, it says, but praise our Father in heaven.